0: In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope, bring your pole all over. And try not to go down in a heap.
1: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob, podcasting to you live from beautiful Northeast Minneapolis. Top of the show, we heard Daniel Norton from Bandits Keep podcast. YouTube channel, actual play YouTube channel, Monsters and Treasure podcast, probably other things up his sleeve as well. He's a man of many talents, including a little guitar work there. So thanks, Daniel. I appreciate it. Today on the show, it's the third episode of the Old school essentials, advanced fantasy, deep dive. And my goal here today is to wrap up the rest of the character book, or at least the rest of the new character classes that are introduced by, <clears throat> excuse me, Gavin Norman of Necrotic Gnome. But first, I had a call from Jason, Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Take it away, Jason. Lords of light.
0: Hey, Rob. Jason here. Just listen to your next deep dive. Great episode. I notice that Gavin has softened the Druids. It sounds like you removed the requirement for human sacrifice. Tisk tisk tisk. I don't know. I guess if you really want to match, not match, if you want to scratch that AD&D itch, Hyperborea might be the closest thing, but I don't, I really don't think it is. A lot of people say, oh yeah, Hyperborea is like AD&D, but not really. It's still a lot simpler. I. I think if you want to play AD&D, you just need to play AD&D. So you have to flip through the books and do the job and do the work. So I think AD&D is its own beast. And that's okay. That doesn't mean it's better than the other games. It just means it's different. But I'm really enjoying the deep dive and I look forward to the next episode. Take care.
1: Hey, Jason. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. And yeah, I think that's true. It's, uh, it's definitely different. And yeah, if, if what scratches the AD&D itch for you, what really, uh, what you like about AD, AD&D is the, um, the involved game systems and little, um, kind of kooky subsystems and, um, <laughs> for lack of a better word, Arcane approaches to some things, like uh, like the grappling rules, the psionics rules, and stuff. Which you know, some people really dig that stuff, and that's cool. Uh, and of course, you've got the high gaxian prose. You've got all the uh, illustrations and stuff that uh, that people love. There's a lot to love about AD&D. And if you like that and already own it, that's cool. They're really because they're available now on PDF or print-on-demand and stuff like that. I guess, you know, the, the quote-unquote need for retro clones has kind of passed us by, but, you know, uh, with good reason, some don't want to put money into Hasbro's pockets, and some don't want to, uh, would, would much prefer giving it to... <laughs> to uh to a creator that they think is maybe more worthy or at least um is doing things that they appreciate so uh, and i i know that you get that too um the 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 approach that osc advanced has is actually more to my liking because i like the bx system better than ad and d so this is kind of taking almost the way that i think a lot of people played back in the day, where, where it was kind of this hodgepodge approach, taking, picking and choosing the things that you liked from AD&D and adding it onto BASIC or vice versa, taking some of the things that you liked in BX or Beckme or whatever, and using those systems in place of the ones in AD&D that maybe you weren't so fond of. So, yeah, I think Gavin, to a large part, is kind of taking that approach with Advanced Fantasy uh, OSE and taking, making this um, meld uh, of the two game systems. And I think, for the most part, he's uh, been pretty successful at it from what I've seen so far. Yeah, no, <laughs> he has kind of softened the Druid. There's no... I don't know if the, I don't remember if the player's handbook or AD&D DM's guy talked about human sacrifice, but I know like in the deities and demigods under the Celtic deities that there was talk of human sacrifice and stuff like that. There isn't in old school uh, essentials advanced fantasy. And likewise, the, the whole social aspects that were traditionally presented for some of the um, subterranean um, monsters that became player character uh, available in uh, in unearthed Arcana, they were all like chaotic evil or lawful evil or neutral evil, and had these unsavory parts about them as well. So a lot of that's been kind of scrubbed out, as well as some of the social, like uh, I mean, the the, the implication in uh, the description of the drow is that they they worship some kind of alien deity or something like that. And that they have these close association with spiders. So that's all there, but uh, there's no mention that it's a demon uh, <laughs> princess and there's no, men- no mention of love or, uh, um, um, or the matriarchal society that uh, was developed in, in a D and D for the drow and, uh, and his his uh, kind of oh and for the gray dwarves, there's no mention of them being inherently evil or anything like that. He does address it here on page four of the uh, character book of Old School Essentials Advanced Fantasy. Um, underworld races are traditionally assumed to be evil antagonistic towards surface dwellers. However, the referee may wish to portray them as merely alien rather than actually evil. For example, the drower described as dwelling with various species of spiders. To many players, this carries a degree of creepiness, but it does not necessarily imply evil or chaos. Instead, the referee could choose to portray Drow as neutral-aligned guardians of murky, cobwebbed crystal caverns. So, yeah, it's, it's presented in a much more kind of, I don't know, setting agnostic kind of way. So, I think that's fine. But uh, yeah, thanks for the call, Jason. And now let's move into the rest of the characters in Old School Essentials Advanced Fantasy. Maybe my sorcery can break its grip. <laughs> These next two classes are the ones that I think I'd be most apt to just add to a straight OSE classic game or OSE or BX game if you wanted to just add a little bit more flavor, a few more options and that is the half-elf and the half-orc. The half-elf is more or less uh, elf light. It uh, uses the, the same template as the elf character. Uh, so you've got uh, a character that's half-human and half-elf. They can use any armor, any weapons... Uh, they have a d six hit die. their prime requisites are intelligence and strength. They have minimum requirements of charisma and constitution of nine um, they They have the same like detecting secret doors ability as an elf infravision of sixty feet um, they don 't have the immunity to the paralysis of ghouls and they don 't have as many languages they only start out with common and elvish along with their alignment language if you use that. Uh but the the Thacko, the saving throws uh are exactly the same as an elf. The biggest difference is that uh the level prode- progression is much more rapid for the half elf. They use the same experience point requirements as a magic user. So they will come into more hit points a lot more rapidly than the elf character, who needs like 4,000 to get to second level, 8,000 to get to third, whereas the half-elf is 2,500 and 5,000 respectively. So the, the half-elf is generally a level ahead of an elf character class, and they can go up to 12th level, whereas an elf is limited to 10th. So what's the drawback? Well, they don't get nearly as many spells. They don't begin with a spell. They get one at at second level, and their progression for spells is much more slow. There are a couple spots where they don't get any more spell slots, and they can only get up to fourth level spells. So they're typically a level, or maybe even two, behind the elf. So while you're advancing more quickly, and therefore uh, getting more hit points more rapidly, um, improving your attack rolls and saving throws before like an elf character would so be you become more survivable in that manner because really the elf one of the biggest drawbacks is you start out as the most powerful character but then you just stay there and stay there and many there are other character classes that will be third level the cleric the thief uh, before the elf even gets to second level so you find yourself quickly becoming even the magic user will potentially have more hit points available to them uh, than the elf so that's really kind of what happens is the, the elf rapidly becomes uh, the class jaw of the party <laughs> even though they have you know potentially a better a better armor class it's it's uh, yeah that's uh, the biggest drawback and it's one of the main reasons a lot of people stay away from the elf is they just don't want to pay that experience point penalty. So I like this as a kind of a go-between. It still allows the idea of having a um, a sword-wielding, armor-wearing sorcerer, but, uh, but it's not quite as steep a price, But you, and you don't become nearly as powerful a magic user as a, a straight elf can be. Now, one thing I, I kind of wish, and maybe what I'd do, is that the half-elf, to me, maybe should be more flexible. Uh, perhaps they should be able to choose what kind of magic they cast. It's not ju- not always magic user spells. Maybe instead they could choose to cast cleric spells or druid spells. I'd probably let the character, the player, decide at, at character creation which approach they were going to take, and I'd be fine with them choosing any one of those things. Uh, there's advantages and disadvantages to all the spell lists, so you know, that's maybe what I'd do, and if they chose cleric or druid spells, the prime requisite would probably switch from intelligence to wisdom. Easy uh, fix and easy modifications. The half-orc might be my favorite of the classes I've gone over. Well, of the ones I've gone over so far, definitely it's my favorite, and I'm biased for. If I play a non-human in D D or a D anD D type game, it's typically a dwarf or a half orc. Um, I don't know why I like them. I, <laughs> maybe it's the idea of being kind of an outcast or something is uh, is has some kind of appeal or something. But uh, yeah, so the half orc as a class in old school. Essentials Advanced is kind of a brigand type of character, so it it blurs the lines, has elements of both the thief and a fighter. So it, uh, the half-orc has prime requisites of dexterity and strength. There's no prerequisite requirements for attributes. Use a d6 hit die. They can use uh, leather, chainmail, and shield, so they can't use plate. Can use any weapon. They start out with common and Orcish for languages, of course. Um, they have a the saving throw and to hit adjustments of a thief. Now the big drawback is uh, half work. Well, to some might be seen as this: the half work, like the halfling and gnome, is only limited to eighth level. Um, their level progression is a, a little bit quicker than, um, a fighter, a little bit slower than a cleric. It kind of is in between a cleric and a fighter. You need 1,800 to get to second level, 3,600 to third, 7,000 to fourth, 14,000, 2860 and 120. So, uh, a little bit better than a fighter, but, uh, yeah. So what thieving abilities do they get? They get backstab. Like a thief, they get hide and shadows move silently, and pick pockets. So they get, uh, you know, a fair amount of thieving abilities. They could be kind of like a, a good scout or a, kind of a striker kind of character. And, of course, they also get Infravision, like an orc. So that would aid them in being some kind of ambush, night fighter scout kind of thing, too. The other drawback the half-orc has is in their retainer aspect. They have difficulty gaining the trust of humans and demi-humans due to an orc's chaotic tendencies. Uh, retainers and a half-orc's employee have their loyalty score reduced by one, which does not apply to retainers who are also half-orcs. Um, you know, I wonder if something like that shouldn't be in play for a drow or durgar character too, who would be just as alien and probably as distrusted by surface dwelling humans and demi humans as a, as a half work would be at least if you kind of follow more of the type of lore that was presented in AD and D first edition. I think that's something you could easily, uh, ding the, uh, the durgar and drow characters with, uh, Use that same kind of setup for them. And then uh, for the domain level play, uh, after reaching 8th level, the half-orc can establish a bandit stronghold and attract uh, apprentices, 2d6 apprentices, first-level characters as their kind of henchmen. So that's the half-orc. Pretty cool class. I also like the illustration here that goes along with it. Um, I mean, their saving throws are going to stink. Because I mean, they get one one saving throw bump at at fifth level, and that's it. Um, so, <laughs> so even an eighth level, just like a thief or whatever, their their saving throws stink. But uh, yeah, it's a. I think it's a pretty cool class, one that I'd gladly play.
0: Alright, let's shake
1: it. The illusionist is pretty much a magic user. I could probably end it right there. It's a magic user that uses the Illusionist spells, uh, <laughs> spell lists instead of the magic user spell lists. Um, you know, other than that, it's the only difference is really is that uh, the Illusionist has a minimum dexterity of 9, and they can't use uh, magic items whose effects cause direct damage, so they couldn't use, like, a Wand of Fireballs, for instance. Um... That's the only appreciable differences. The X point uh, progression, hit dice, tackle, saving throws, uh, even the domain level play, it's all the same as a magic user, which maybe, you know, that's fine. Uh, In AD&D, they were a bit more different. The illusionist had the the minimum requirements of 15 intelligence and 16 dexterity. They had a slightly more rapid... uh, Level progression. I think they only needed they needed like twenty two hundred to get to second level instead of twenty five hundred, so it was just slightly better, like ten percent or something. Um, and they at upper levels, the illusionist spells capped out at seventh level spells, whereas the magic user spells went all the way up to ninth level. So the magic user had more, you know, really high power potential than the Illusionist. But we really won't come into um, a lot of the differentiation until I cover the the Illusionist spells in a future episode. And now we come to The Knight, which is the OSE advanced take on the AD&D Cavalier, which was introduced in a dragon magazine and then into uh, Unearthed Arcana, The Cavalier, if I remember right, had pretty high minimum requirements of 15s, I think, in strength, dexterity, constitution, and then I think they had minimums uh, in intelligence and charisma as well. And the one really uh, unique thing, well, one of the unique things about the Cavalier was if... uh, they introduced the idea of social standing rolling for that before at character creation and if you rolled something below upper class you your character actually started out at zero level and they had to progress through a couple like squire kind of zero levels before they became a first level cavalier um so unless you rolled really high, like a ninety-one or higher, I think on percentile dice, your your cavalier started out at zero level, um, and the the real advantages you had, other than, um, well, the class ability, as if I remember right, is you got bonuses when you were fighting on horseback. You got bonuses fighting with a lance, like you were specialized with it, and then I think you also gained other weapons, the specialization. Kind of like how they added for the fighter. You also had the potential to in- increase your physical attributes. So like the fighter had the exceptional strength if they had an 18. You also rolled percentals, so you could have 1823 strength or 1800 strength. You did that for all the physical attributes as a cavalier character. So at character creation, you'd maybe have a 1643 strength and a fifteen. 94 dexterity, and every level that you advanced, I think you rolled a d10 and added it to that so you could slowly increase your ability scores, which was not a possibility for any of the other classes in AD&D. So that was another kind of unique thing about the class. Now, the OSE uh, knight is definitely taking that kind of idea so they have, a, they have minimums of only 9 in constitution and dexterity with a prime requisite in strength. Uh, they use a D8 hit dice just like all the other fighter types. Their armor uh, is... They can't use leather armor because that's not seen as um, uh, becoming of a knight. It's the armor that serfs and levies wear, not not proper knights, so they have to wear chainmail or better, and they can't use any missile weapons. That's a huge drawback, only being able to use melee weapons. They have to follow this chivalric code. Um, Social standing, they um, knights of first and second level are known as squires and are not yet regarded as true knights. Upon reaching third level, the character is knighted by their liege and gains the right to bear a coat of arms. Um... A knight must have the same alignment as their liege. Yeah, and then they, So they have to follow this chivalric code, which is just like it was in the um, AD&D Cavalier. They have uh, something about dishonor. A knight who brings dishonor upon themselves or their liege, this may include changing alignment, may have their knighthood revoked. In this case, the character becomes a fighter of equivalent level. It may be possible to regain the status of knighthood by performing a special quest um, prowess of arms knights regard armor as a... well oh, so all right they'll always favor the most impressive and impervious looking armor available. single combat in a battle. a knight must attack the most powerful or worthy foe in single combat. <laughs> Uh, So what do you get for these things? Uh, Well, not much. Uh, Flying mounts, a knight of fifth level or higher, can train fantastic flying monsters as mounts. So uh, in general, a knight may train flying monsters of hit days at most equal to the knight's level. So you could potentially train a pegasus or a hippogriff or a griffin or something like that. Um, which is kind of cool. Um, for horsemanship, they're they have ability to assess uh, steeds. They can urge their uh, their steed to greater speed. From fifth level, they can they can generally move their, their steed up a movement rate bracket. Uh, for an hour once per day which like yeah, that, that could be useful in a chase or trying to evade someone they can claim hospitality they can expect hospitality and aid from nobles and other knights of the same alignment or social affiliation and they're expected to extend such hospitality in kind they get plus 1 to attack rolls when mounted yeah. that's <laughs> i I guess that's, that's cool, but, um, uh, you know, whoop de doo um, Strength of Will, this is pretty good. They're immune to all supernatural fear effects. And from third level on, companions within 10 feet of the knight gain plus 2 on saving throws against fear effects. And retainers and mercenaries under the knight's command within 10 feet gain a plus 2 bonus to loyalty or morale. That's good. Uh, beguilement. Knights gain a plus four bonus uh, on saving throws against hold spells, charms, mind control, hypnotism, suggestion, etc., and plus two against illusion. And and they do gain a saving throw, one that's not normally allowed, against sleep spells. So that's all pretty cool stuff. Now does it warrant having a, a slower experience point progression than a fighter? Because you're giving up missile weapons, uh, you're having to follow this chivalric code, all to just you know get plus one on um, your attack rolls when mounted, and this uh, strength of will and uh, and a little bit of like horsemanship stuff. Um, I guess your mileage may vary if you really. This this more than anything comes down to a. To me, this class is superfluous. I always thought the Cavalier kind of was too. It it just is a fighter that fo- follows a chivalric code, like a Western European chivalric code. Um, to me, that's like a role playing choice. This it doesn't really warrant a whole separate class. Uh, the knight can, according to, if you play it like by the book. Any time a knight of third level or higher wishes and has sufficient money, they can build a castle or stronghold and control the surrounding lands. So that they can potentially get into domain level play much more quickly than other classes, if that's how you run it. Now, I run my games where this is kind of the rule of thumb for anyone. If you have the money um, and the social standing, I mean, you could be... There can be zero level characters that are the lord of a manor or lord of a castle or something. It's to me, level doesn't really have anything to do with it. But uh, um, yeah, and then at ninth level, they they may be granted a title such as baron or baroness. Um, so yeah, there you have it. The knight. It's probably in my mind the weakest of all the classes in OSC advance. Just like in my mind, it was the weakest. Of all the classes that were in uh, AD&D first edition, and now we move on to the paladin. And oh, wait a minute, Rob, what about the monk? What happened to the monk? Shouldn't that come next alphabetically? Well, if you were using all the classes from the AD&D books, yes, the monk should come next. But Gavin chose not to include The Monk in Old School Essentials. And I think the reason was that at one time the plan was to have a genre book that would be having um, kind of the theme of the old Oriental adventures that AD&D came out with. So the idea, I think, was to have a genre book of um, with more of a, a Japanese and or Chinese Um, kind of themed fantasy game and have classes like that the ninja and other samurai and things like that in that book. I don't know if those plans are still in the works, they've been tabled, or, or what, but for whatever reason there is no monk in OSC Advanced, which honestly is fine with me, that's a class, I know a lot of people love monks, just like the Bard, for me, both of those classes are kind of, I, I don't think they really fit with the typical D and D type of setting. Um, so I don't know. To me, along with the the Cavalier and Knight, they weren't a very um, a needed kind of class to me. If you like the kind of Kung Fu fighting in your D and D, cool. You could easily make your own Monk will not find it here. And now the Paladin, maybe the most problematic character (laughs) in in a lot of parties. Ones that cause all kinds of trouble. But, is it watered down a little bit? Are some of the harsh restrictions of the Paladin removed in the OSC Advance? Well, yes, a little bit. For one, they don't need a 17 Charisma and a 13 or 17 Charisma and a 13 Wisdom and 12 strength and 9 constitution. All they need is a uh, 9 charisma in OSC Advanced. Their prime requisites are strength and wisdom. They use a d8 hit point, like all the others fighters. Any armor, any weapons. Uh, Let's see. Paladins are warriors sworn by sacred oath to the service of a lawful holy order. They must be lawful. If the character's alignment ever changes for any reason... They lose all class abilities and become a fighter at the same level. The referee may allow the character to perform a quest or atonement in order to regain the status of Paladin. Uh, let's see. I th- is that it? Is th- I-, I think that's it as far as... So there's nothing in here like in a- the first edition AD&D where they could not knowingly adventure with evil characters or even like chaotic characters. So this is not nearly as, as severe as the AD and D paladin, which I kind of like because if someone chose to be a paladin in AD and D, that basically was like telling all the other players in the, in the group. All right, you guys can't be any of these things. Here's my list of (laughs) demands. Um, so, of course, I mean, you could have a conversation before the game starts and agree, yeah, we want to, um, let's make this type of party, you know, um, in which case it, you're all on the same page, right? But if you're just making characters independently and you all come together and it's like, oh, oops, I made a chaotic neutral thief or I'm my character's an assassin or whatever, it's like, no, this is oil and water, it's not going to work. Um, the paladin in AD&D also had some at will or constant powers that were very powerful. They could detect evil at will and they, best of all, had a permanent, constant protection from evil about them. I think within a 10 foot radius, um, that's really powerful stuff. And I think Wisely was jettisoned here. If you want to have the character classes be a little bit more in line with one another, a little bit more balanced, I think that was uh, a wise decision. They still do have a lot of powerful things, though. They are immune to all disease, just like the original Paladin. They can lay on hands. They can heal two hit points per day per level uh, for wounded characters, and additionally may cure a disease once per week by laying on hand. So that's very much like the ad Paladin. They gain the ability to turn undead like a cleric at third level and uh, continue to improve beyond that. So they're essentially turning undead as a cleric two levels lower. Um, they um, gain the ability to summon a, uh, a magical warhorse, just like a at fourth level, just like a, a paladin in AD and D, and the stats are very similar. A five plus five hit die, holy charger. Uh, if the horse dies, another may not be summoned for ten years. So woo, you better protect that boy. Um, like um, the paladin in AD and D, they also gain the ability to cast cleric spells starting at ninth level. So I mean, it's a long way away. Uh, it's not your 5e paladin who gets spells almost immediately um this is you're you're pretty much a holy fighter with some cool abilities uh, but you're not a spellcaster really and their saving throws like ad and d are basically those of a fighter with a plus two bonus on everything so this is a really powerful class probably the most powerful class as present presented in uh in old school essentials with maybe the possible exception of the gnome (laughs) and the experience point uh, requirements follow suit with what they were in AD&D. They need 2,750 to get to second level, 5,500 for third, 12,000 at fourth. So you're going to be advancing slightly slower than a fighter, um, which is warranted because the paladin is pretty, pretty tough stuff. Um, they must also have a vow of humility, is uh, as their, their other big drawback. They may only, uh, keep only a total of one, uh, suit of magical armor, one magical shield, and one magical melee weapon, and must donate 10% of all income to a lawful religious institution. So, yeah, those are your, your drawbacks. Um, like clerics, they, they can suffer disfavor from their deity if they, um, are not faithful to their tenets of their religion, um, and could incur penalties and have some of their powers revoked uh, until atonement takes place and all that fun stuff. So, but yeah, in general, uh, I think this captures this is essentially the AD and D paladin, a, a little bit of the paladin light, but without the explicit paladin baggage from from AD and D. Some people might like that, not having. As many requirements, some people might see that as, no, it should be like it was in AD&D, where you really, <laughs> you didn't tolerate any um, companions that didn't toe the line, so to speak. So, I will move on to uh, the Paladin's cousin. Well, at least another fighter subclass, the Ranger. The ranger is one of those classes that's maybe undergone the most changes that I've seen throughout the editions I'm familiar with. Uh, I'm not as familiar with what they were in the initial strategic review. Ostensibly, they were created to kind of create a character like the character Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. uh, Which is kind of weird to just (laughs) make up a whole class based on um, one character from one source of Appendix N. Um, I don't know, maybe it's not so weird, but um, it's something that I always thought was a little peculiar and more than a little overpowered. Uh, so in first edition, the fighter and the paladin had a D10 for hit dice, and the ranger had a D8. So it was a little worse than the than the paladin and fighter. But to, <laughs> more than compensating for that the fighter or the ranger at at first level started out with two hit dice. So they had 2d8 hit points, uh, at first level. And because they had two hit dice, they could count their constitution bonus twice and a ranger had a minimum constitution of 15. So they had at least two more hit points because of this. Uh, so the ranger all, I mean, It was hard to qualify for. You needed a 15 con, I think you needed a 13 in strength and intelligence, and a 14 in wisdom. So that's not real easy to qualify for. Uh, Here, the minimum con is 9, the minimum wisdom is 9, and the prime requisite is strength. So the first edition Ranger, the other big thing they had, tracking which has been present in all the rangers. And second was this bonus damage against giant class humanoids, which was basically any evil humanoid. Goblins, orcs, hobgoblins, gnolls, trolls, ogres, all the giants. You got plus one damage for every level that you were. So, if you went through the Against the Giants series, you wanted rangers in your party, because if your ninth level ranger was fighting ogres and giants, every time they hit, they'd do an extra 9 points of damage. So, they were doing more damage from their ranger power than they were with the actual damage roll from their sword, or whatever weapon they're using. So, that was really pretty powerful stuff. In the second edition, they changed, they didn't do that anymore, you didn't get that bonus on damage, instead you had one hated foe, uh, which you chose and only got, you got plus four to hit against them, which was, you know, that's still pretty cool, um, but it's only against one type of monster, not this whole giant class humanoid, instead you had to pick ogres, or you had to pick dragons, or whatever, lizard men. Um... And they also uh, they also gave the ranger moving silently and hiding in shadows, if they use studded leather or or lighter armor. And the other big change, and I don't know if this is what caused Drizzt the the Drow Ranger or or <laughs> or Drizzt the Drow Ranger caused the the second edition ranger, but. They could wield weapons in both hands without any penalty if they had studded leather or lower, regardless of what their dexterity was. So every Ranger basically was a dual wielder, which talk about samey boredom, not my cup of tea. Every Ranger's the same. And Unless you're a drill ranger, I guess. (laughs) Anyway, um, and now, of course, in 5e, the ranger is like everything else, a spellcaster to boot. Um, So let's, but let's look here at the OSE ranger. How has Gavin adapted this? Uh, Rangers are members of a secret society which protects their native lands from invasion and the influence of chaos. They are skilled warriors who are adapted to life in the wilds. All right, so they've got a they've got kind of a reason here, and they've got this backdrop. They're members of a secret society. That's kind of cool, to me. That maybe that's how people have always thought of rangers, but and I've had games where that's kind of how I ran them. But I like like how it explicitly says this. And again, maybe I'm wrong, and it said this all along, and I just glossed it over or or have forgotten. As protectors, they may only be lawful or neutral. If they ever change alignment into chaotic, they lose all special abilities and become a fighter of the same level. Um, Awareness. Rangers are only surprised on a roll of one. In previous incarnations, that would extend to the whole party that was present with a ranger, too. Another very powerful skill or class ability they had another reason why everyone wanted a ranger in the party. Now, this is still pretty cool, but as because it only applies to them, it's not nearly as powerful. Um, in combat, they can use any weapon, and they can use any armor with the exception of plate mail, so they have to use armor lighter than plate. Uh, they get druid spells at starting at 8th level, so just like in AD&D, um, first edition, they got started getting druid spells at 8th level. In AD&D, they also got magic user spells, um, which was, I don't know, I suppose to try and make them a little bit more like Aragorn, too. I, I really don't understand that. Um, they also had the ability to use scrying magic items because, of course, Aragorn used the uh, Palantir, so... Um, I don't think there's anything about that in here, though. Uh, let's see. No, I don't see anything about being able to use, like, scrying magic items. All right, here another example of Gavin folding in class abilities with the exploration rules from BXOSE. A party with a ranger may, uh, can more easily find food when foraging, and prey when hunting, so they, they they get a bonus for foraging and hunting. Um, like in many editions, they're limited uh, to wealth and possessions that they can only carry with on their person and mount. So excess must be donated to a worthy cause, not other PCs. In parentheses, uh, pursuit the when the rangers party pursues an opposing group in the wilderness. The chance of evasion is reduced by ten percent. Here's another case where these uh, class ability baked baked in with the uh, uh, with the exploration and uh, pursuit rules in OSC, I like that a lot. This to me is a, an interesting choice. So rather than like some of the other classes where they just have move silently or hide in shadows, like like a thief so that's how the barbarian is is working that's how the um half orc is working but the but the durgar and the ranger instead have this three and six chance of hiding and moving silently in the wilderness the durgar has a three and six chance of moving silently i think underground right so it's it's a little puzzling to me why some of these classes resort to the dn6 and some use percental, and while some have their capabilities scale with level and others it's just a flat amount not sure what the reasoning was behind those two approaches and why they're separate it'd be interesting to hear maybe gavin has expounded on that in places uh, and then there's a whole system of tracking. So uh, uh, they have a percent chance of uh, success of tracking, and that's modified potentially by the conditions, by the size of the grouping tracked, the age of the tracks, whether there's been weather uh, that's fallen or happened, inclement weather between the time they were made and when the is trying to find them. And then uh, after reaching 10th level, the ranger uh, attracts 2d12 beings as followers and they may include human or demi-human adventures animals fantastic mounts sylvan creatures or special monsters so that's a lot like the D ranger too other uh, level progression is slightly slower than the, the fighter i believe they're pretty much the same exact table as was found in the D player's handbook so 2250 at second level 4500 at third same saving throws as a fighter same tit progression as a fighter so yeah the ranger um still a much better (laughs) character class than the fighter like they have been or like they were in ad and d and and probably in second edition ad and d as well so um it's it's fine i I think it's a a good a good adaptation for osc for for bx so yeah like all these other things well done or, most of these other things, well done. Whew, and my voice is almost going as we reach the last class in advanced fantasy, old-school essentials, the svirfneblin, Neblin, or Deep Gnome, as they're known. Um, yeah, these guys were first uh, introduced in the D-series modules, along with the Drow and the Durgar and the kuo-toa and all those subterranean races and species. Um, it's... uh, It's an interesting class idea. They were introduced as player character options like the other ones in the Dragon and then Unearthed Arcana. Uh, They have a minimum con of 9. Prime Requisite Strength. Hit die of 6. Like the Halfling, the Gnome, and the the Half-Orc, they are limited to 8th level. Their experience point progression is... A little bit. Well, let me look and see if it's comparable to the Durgar. No, it's so it's slightly less than the magic user, slightly more than like the dwarf, and slightly less than the straight gnome. It, it, like it would be really interesting to hear how Gavin arrived at, at these various level progression charts for the the brand new things where there was no kind of reference point um the gnome the surf neblin the Durgar, the half orc um yeah I'd, I'd i'd like to hear the methodology or was it just kind of well, i'm just gonna ballpark it it's kind of between this class and that class and power so i'm gonna yeah you know park the experience point requirements here uh their saving throws are just like a gnome so they're They're similar to the Dwarf and Halfling but a little worse in Breath Weapon, a little better in Spells. Uh, And because the progressions for to hit and saving throws um, follow the same progression as a Fighter rather than a Magic user like the Gnome does, they have two tiers of advancement within their eight levels, so they can potentially get better saving throws than just the the gnome, the surface-dwelling gnome. Um, so they're, But they're pretty much all about their special abilities. Um, well, before that, though, they can use any weapon and armor appropriate to their size. Uh, their languages, they get the common, deep common, gnomish, dwarvish, kobold... And the language of earth elementals. I wonder what that sounds like. Uh, They have the uncanny ability to blend into stone. They can go unnoticed within an environment of natural or carved stone so long as they remain remain silent and motionless. Chance of success is four and six in gloomy conditions or two and six in well-lit conditions. It's pretty useful. Um... They, like, like gnomes and halflings, due to their small size, they get a plus two on their AC when attacked by uh, opponents larger than humans. They have the same kind of detecting, construction, mining kind of stuff as gnomes and dwarves. They get a plus two on saves versus illusions. Um, they have 90-foot infravision, but unlike gnomes and like Duergar and Drow, they have the light sensitivity drawback. So, minus two to hit and minus one on AC and bright light. Um, then they have this other thing called Stone Murmurs. And I think in the the player character species for AD&D and Unearthed Arcana, they just gave them the ability to like summon an Earth Elemental or summon a Zorn or something or maybe in groups they could do that Um, I don't remember exactly how it went but in OSE they have this ability, they can understand the imperceptible grumblings of stone if a Swerf Neblin stands quietly for one turn with their ear pressed against a stone surface they have a two in six chance of divining one of the following pieces of information player's choice the presence of secret doors in the stone within ten feet the presence of gems or precious metals up to thirty feet beyond the surface, the presence of living creatures up to thirty feet beyond the surface, the presence of bodies of water or open spaces up to sixty feet beyond the surface. So yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Um, I like that. That's yeah, interesting flavor to this to this class that makes them stand apart from others um, yeah and it's not it's not like unduly powerful um, you know as a DM I'd probably kind of try and rein that in saying that you couldn't just stand there forever until you <laughs> until you detected the secret door you know um, that maybe you could only do it for one turn and then it would await uh, some period or something just so it didn't get abused um, they can use all magic items except for spell scrolls, which deal with summoning or controlling earth elementals. This includes items that can normally only be used by spellcasters. At eighth level, for their domain thing, they can attract. They can construct a subterranean stronghold that will attract snurf ne- Neblin from far and wide. And because of their connection with Earth Elementals, one d D3 16 hit-die Earth Elementals will live in the rocks around the Stronghold and will be friendly with the Swerf Neblin. So, they don't gain the ability to, like, summon Earth Elementals, but at 8th level they attract them to kind of uh, be friendly residents or whatever, or, or uh, allies of the the Surf Neblin Lord. So, It's kind of a elegant way of um, having that flavor of having an earth elemental's dealing with you, but it's not like you can just go to the tomb of horrors and summon an earth elemental. You have to. It's only hanging out around your stronghold to help help out there. So, yeah, I think this is of the underdark characters. I um, maybe not surprisingly, the Surf Neblin seems like the most palatable to me of the ones presented. But, you know, all of them could work if you're, if you're running an a, a underworld kind of campaign, I think. Whether or not they fit in all types of settings is, uh, yeah, your mileage may vary, right? So, I think I'm approaching about an hour, and I should probably pull the plug on the mic here rather than blabbing on about the rest of the uh, advanced characters. Maybe that will be a separate episode or maybe I'll fold it in with, uh, with the next when we start talking about spells or monsters or something else in the Old School Essentials Advanced Fantasy Box Set by Gavin Norman of Necrotic Gnomes Games. So thanks for listening to all of this. Thanks to Jason for your call. If anyone else has any thoughts, comments, opinions, disagreements... What have you, you can send me a voicemail through Anchor, either the app or the web browser. You can send me a message, uh, like DM me in Discord. I'm on various Discord channels, most commonly on the Audio Dungeon Discord. Or you can send me a voice file at bigbalboni at gmail.com. And until I talk to you again, thanks for listening, and don't go down in a heap. Just one more thing, I've been driving around here listening back to my draft as I run some errands, it occurs to me, if my memory serves right, that illusionists in AD&D actually could go up to 8th level spells, not 7th level spells, I think it was just Clerics and Druids that were limited to 7th level spells, and I wonder with the Ranger and the Duergar with having their stealth abilities as a x and six chance that doesn't change rather than percentage chances that scales with level wonder if that somehow is a, an adaptation of their enhanced chances to surprise uh, opponents and that was the the reason there's a difference between it being more like a thieving ability and more instead like an enhanced chance to surprise people I think Rangers had that. It wouldn't surprise me if Durgar had some kind of enhanced surprise range or something. Anyway, just spitballing. Thanks. See ya.